Chuck Swindoll tells a story often of a friend of his who was hunting in Northern California and he climbed to the top of a rocky gorge and looked over the ledge and he saw something out of the corner of his eye moving. And before he knew it, a rattlesnake struck at him and barely missed his throat and got stuck in the top of his jacket. And he said he, he, he turned and he fell down the embankment that he just walked up and he was able to get his rifle in between the, the fangs and the jacket and start to pull the rattlesnake off. But he realized that the whole body of the snake was now coiled around his neck. He could feel the warmth of the venom that was on his neck going down into his jacket. And he says this great line. He said to his friend, I had to choke it to death. This was the only way out of that moment. And so today in our text in Judges 16, we're going to continue on in Samson's life. And we're going to see the, the strongest man on the planet completely subdued by a Philistine woman. But what actually happens is that Samson is unable to get the snake of temptation from around his neck. He doesn't deal with it. And it ends up costing him his life. So when you go to Judges 16... 20 years have gone by since last week, a good amount of time. So Samson kills a 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone, and the text says he judged the nation for 20 years, doing things we assume like the other judges did, leading armies, settling disputes. But Samson has learned nothing over this 20-year period. He hasn't matured. His impulsiveness and his sin rule him. And chapter 15 ends with a really kind of sad phrase. It says, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. <laughs> not, not in the days of Samson or the line that the land had peace, which is what we saw when other deliverers actually delivered God's people from their enemies. Samson is not a real deliverer here yet. What we have is 20 years of compounding sin, 20 years of living with the enemy, 20 years of unchecked arrogance leads to this. Look at verse 1. Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and he went to bed with her. When the Gazites heard that Samson was there, they surrounded the place and waited an ambush for him all that night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night saying, let's wait until dawn, then we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up took hold of the doors of the city gate along with the gateposts, pulled them out, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders, and he took them to the top of the mountain overlooking Hebron. So we have the leader of Israel's armies, not just hanging out with the enemy, but actually visiting their capital city and spending time with their women. Samson is fearless, but not because he's empowered by God to do his will, and he knows that God is with him. He's fearless because he is a fool. He's fearless because his sin has fully blinded him. No other judge has been quite like this man in all the accounts that we've read so far in the book of Judges. They're all a mix of fear and failure, but there's always some separation between God's people and their enemies but not with Samson. At this point in the story of Judges, he is as much Philistine as he is Hebrew. And in sin, 
Samson has bound himself to his enemies. And the text says that he ripped the city gates out of the ground, (laughs) which is a wild part of the story because it's 40 miles from Gaza to the peak of this mountain. So three, four, five, six hundred pound gates on his back for 40 miles because he's slightly irritated that they had a plan to kill him. And then look at verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love, and we're going to use that term very loosely here. He fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So up until this point, when we think about Samson, we think about him as a big dude. But the fact that the Philistines ask, where does his strength come from, may mean that he was just a regular size guy. Regardless of if he was muscular or not, the story takes a turn here because it seems like Samson's enemies are done with just trying to overpower him and subdue him. They have a plan now. They're going to try to take advantage of his weakness and subdue him. And the amount that they bribed Delilah with here is ridiculously large. Just for perspective, just in the book of Judges, this is three times what Gideon collected from the Midianites when he defeated them, and that was an army of over 100,000 people. So Delilah is set to be fabulously wealthy, probably the richest Philistine woman ever if she's successful here. And so you see the beginning of the worst kind of romantic relationship ever, where both parties are using each other to the fullest. Delilah wants to be rich, wants to be a woman of power. And you see Samson, he is addicted to the thrill of danger and makes very poor choices to who he hangs around and with. And I want you to also see, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, the amount of sexual sin in this chapter. That it opens with him with a prostitute, and now he's in love and living with Delilah. So go to verse 6. It says, so Delilah said to Samson, please help me. Where does your great strength come from? How can someone tie you up and make you helpless? And so it begins. Samson told her, if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become weak and I will be like any other man. The Philistine leaders brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she tied him up with them. While the men in ambush were waiting in a room, she called out, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire. And the secret of his strength remained unknown. So an important thing to notice here right off the bat is that Samson broke his Nazarite vow again. These uh, bowstrings or ropes, we're not exactly sure if they are for a bow or if they're to make a tent. It doesn't matter. They're made from animal products. And for him to say, bring me ones that have not been dried, means he is coming in contact with another corpse. He essentially says to Delilah, tie me up with something that's unclean for someone like me. So he breaks it again. Then, in verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, you have mocked me and told me lies. Won't you please tell me how you can be tied up? Then he told her, if they tie me up with new ropes, 
that have never been used, I will become weak and like any other man. Delilah took new ropes, tied them up, and then shouted, Samson, the Philistines are here. But while the men in ambush were waiting in her room, he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have mocked me all along and told me lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. And he told her, if you weave the seven braids on my head into the fabric on a loom. So she fashioned the braids with a pen and called to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. He awoke from his sleep. It's a weird point in this story. He's asleep with a loom attached to him and pulled out the pen with the loom and the web. So at this point, he, he is just really playing with fire because he's at least told her it has something to do with his hair. And I'm not sure how that works. I don't know what kind of drunken stupor you would have to be in to fall so asleep that you can tie hair into a loom enough that it's considered weaved together. It's a lot of work. I'm assuming it took her a few hours to do this, to get the equipment, the absurdity of all of this. And then you've got a group of men huddled in the next room with their swords and shields ready to take on Samson. Just the absurdity of all of this. And then we're going to go to, let's see, verse 15. How can you say I love you? Now we're getting serious. How can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. So at this point, I don't think Samson was blinded by love. And that's why this went on for days and days. He knew that Delilah had a plot against him. Just the sheer number of groups that are coming in and out of the house to try to subdue him should have been some indication to him. It's not, he, he knows what's happening here. He knows what's going on. But what really is happening in his heart is he's so arrogant, he believes, I can manage this situation. I can manage this. I like being with Delilah. I can deal with the negative parts of this relationship. I can do it. And if you read this, and if at any point you've thought, this is just strange, ancient, Semitic writing, how often do you and I say the same thing? How does this apply to us? I really enjoy this sin. I can deal with the negative consequences. I love the way that this substance makes me feel. I can manage the negative parts of this. How often do we say, I, I need this, I deserve this. I can take one more click online. I can spend one more minute on the couch. I can go one more round of an inappropriate conversation. I can manage this. But just like Samson, we can't. Peter tells us to be sober-minded which is kind of the opposite of Samson's entire existence. Be sober-minded, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. Now remember the story of the hunter at the beginning. He had to choke it to death because it was the only way out of that situation. Such is the case with temptation and sin. You cannot sit in it like Samson does. You can't keep it coiled around your neck. Marshall Siegel says this, No temptation is innocent or trivial. All temptation schemes and plots for this one end, your never-ending misery. 
Temptation will please you to abuse you, seduce you to undo you, distract you to destroy you. And we see with Samson and in our own lives, temptation wears you down until you give in. Look at verse 16. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth. And said to her, my hair has never been cut because I'm a Nazarite to God from birth. If my head's shaved, my strength will leave me and I'll become weak like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap. And called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless. And his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. And when he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How sad is verse 20. He did not know that the Lord had left him. He tells her the full truth, and then he falls asleep on her lap. Do do we need any more proof here that Samson fully believes the source of his strength is him? Not God. He never took his Nazarite vow seriously. He hardly ever obeyed it. Throughout all the narrative of his life, again and again and again, he compromises over and over again. And at this point, he is asleep in the middle of the night, completely given over to the darkness around him and inside of him. So many compromises, so much sexual sin. We can't gloss over that in a chapter like this. That kind of sin doesn't just kill you. It also kills your marriage. If you're married, your kids, if you have them, this church, your community, kills everything. Proverbs 5 says, though the lips of the forbidden woman or man drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps head straight for Sheol. If you keep sexual sin around like Samson did, it's like keeping a pet wild animal in the house. It's manageable, small at first, but at some point it's going to do what wild animals do and take off the collar and maim and kill you and your family. And we'll see over the next two weeks the undoing of Samson because of compromise after compromise after compromise regarding sexual ethics. He had none. Years ago, I took a friend of mine who had a a really severe pornography addiction to the store to exchange a smartphone for a dumb phone, a flip phone. And about a week later, he was back with his smartphone. And I called him and he said, well, life is just too difficult without this. And I said, well, why why don't we see what Christ has to say? Is it more challenging than living with one hand? Because that's how seriously Christ takes this. He says... If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
Because it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than have your whole body thrown into hell. That's what Christ says about sexual sin and temptation. And whatever your greatest temptation is, whether it is sexual sin, whether it's gossip, whether it's sinful anger, whether it's overeating or the worship of money or comfort, I want us to see in this text this morning a framework to fight temptation. What do we do when this happens? Because it's going to happen often and to all of us. And the first thing we do is we run. Very simple. We get out of there. We flee. Look at just Samson's life. How many opportunities did he have to actually go to a different physical location? To get up, to walk home, to be with his family, to be with his people who worshipped the true God. Instead, he spent day after day, year after year, around people who hated him, who hated God, and who were poisoning his thoughts about who the Lord is. How many times do we see he could have just ran away? And look at what Scripture says over and over. Flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2. Proverbs 4 says, keep off of the path of the wicked. Don't proceed on the way of evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass by. Think back in your own life when you've given in to temptation. Sometimes it does strike suddenly, but how many times... Have you and I fallen into sin after so much time traveling in the wrong direction? Bad choice after bad choice. So many opportunities to turn back, and yet we don't. So where we need to start our fight against sin is we need to start when we're tempted by running in the opposite direction. And that is going to look different depending on what sin you are primarily tempted by or tempted by right now. It may mean like my friend needed to do, to go get rid of your smartphone. But it also may mean you need to end that tempting relationship or change jobs or go to a different gym or stop drinking. Do whatever you need to do to get off the path of the wicked. The second part of this framework is the reality that God's word is better, that God's promises are better. Samson had specific promises from God to hold on to about his actual life, a blessing to find strength in. Yet he believed at every turn that his desires were better than God's word, that he would bless himself with what he wanted instead of waiting on God's blessing. His way was better than God's way. He knew in some way that his power came from God, but he never really believed the fullness of what God said. He never obeyed his Nazarite vow. I have a book in my office here at the church from the 60s. An author compiled all the promises of God in Scripture. That's all it is. It's a verse and a short explanation of the promise to Israel, to the church, to the world, and that's what it is. It's, it's a huge book. That's one of the reasons I keep it on my desk to remember how many promises God has made. I also keep it there because it used to belong to a educational institution here in Fort Worth. And for whatever reason, because it wasn't checked out enough 
or that kind of Bible material was no longer supported, it got discarded. And a librarian or a, or a volunteer went wild with a discard stamp on the inside of this book of God's promises. <laughs> and so I keep it there to remember. The illustration was lost on them. They were just doing their job. They, that, there was probably a, a line of 500 books they were stamping that day. But I need to remember how many promises God has made me, and they can't be discarded. That I have nothing else to stand on, ultimately. I have nothing else that has any value or weight. There's nothing that I can bank on like what God has told me. So I keep that book there to remind me of that. There's 7,500 promises in Scripture from God to people that can apply directly to us. If I stood here and I gave something like five seconds to read it and to think about the promise, we would be here for ten and a half hours. That's how much God has spoken about what he does, is doing, and is going to do for his people. Let's, let's just be reminded of some of these promises. One of the ones that's the most often refrain in Scripture, a promise that the Lord is good. Just like Ryan prayed this morning, the reality that the God of the Bible, the living God, is not malicious. He's not waiting on us to do something so that he can love us. The truth of Scripture says, while we were still yet sinners, Christ loved us. And so we can bank on the fact that God is good and his faithful love is going to endure forever. He's going to love his people to the end. He's going to keep us to the end. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. Jesus made the promise that I'm the light of the world and whoever follows Christ will never walk in darkness. And Paul says in Romans 8, the father didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? How much time do I spend, do you spend each day thinking about what we want, like Samson? And how much time do we spend each day actually thinking about what God has promised us, given us, provided for us in Christ? Ultimately, it comes down to this. What God has given me right now and will give me is better than any fleeting sin. It's better. I need to be reminded of that every single day. I have never once been happy giving into temptation. Always, every time, regretted it. John Piper says, the power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. No one sins out of a sense of duty. And he goes on to say, sinful pleasure will always be appealing if we have not set our hearts on a superior pleasure. One of our memory verses from last year, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not fractions, not short-lived thrills, 
but the real thing that satisfies us forever. So we have to believe that God's promises are better. We have to hide God's word in our heart so we might not sin against him. We need to remember these promises. One of my favorite ways to, to memorize scripture is to use a, an app called Fighter Verses. It's a product of Bethlehem Baptist Church, John Piper's ministry, and it's a verse or a short passage per week, and it gives you a lot of different ways to memorize it, and that adds up. That adds up. In moments where you think, what am I going to do here? You don't have to go to a Bible and open it because you have God's word internally. This is what God says to me, and the Holy Spirit uses that. It is a powerful weapon to fight temptation and sin. So memorize God's word. The next part in this framework is that God's people are with you. The more time I spend counseling Christians who have fallen into sin, the more I realize how quickly we drift. We drift. We stop gathering on Sundays. We stop praying. We stop reading the word. And then we get eaten alive. I'm not being legalistic here. You just have to realize no one drifts into holiness. It doesn't accidentally happen. It's a fight against our indwelling flesh. And that fight is best fought together. Everything in this world that you and I do, that we participate in, if we don't watch it carefully, it drifts into decay. Everything. And every person I know that has the kind of Christianity, some kind of Christianity, that devalues community and regular gathering, they're worse off. All of them. Many look less like Christ every day. And some of them have even fallen into faiths just like Samson. And I want you to know that watching stuff on the internet cannot grow you. I don't care how many sermons you intake, how many podcasts you listen to. Those are great supplements. But they can't even remotely do what being here does and how God uses this. So I say I believe in this, not as us as a building or us as an organization, but us as a people. And I believe the word plainly says that the best shot that I have, me, of making it to the end, still walking with Christ, is by sticking as close as I can to his people my whole life. That's the best shot I have because I know that stray sheep get eaten. And look at Samson. No friends, no peers, no mentors. Look at the text. Who does he interact with? His parents, who were terrible, and I don't have enough time to get into all that, but they raised a selfish, self-centered, the world is all about me, everything is about me kind of kid. They were not good. He talks to his parents, he talks to his enemies, and he talks to the women he horrifically abused. That's Samson's circle. I need to be encouraged. I need to be challenged, called to repent. I also need to be surrounded by those who pray, who talk to God, who reflect on Scripture, who push each other to holiness. We can be vigilant against sin and temptation together. If we go it alone, we should expect 
disaster. Just like Samson. The final part of this framework to fight temptation is knowing and believing this. You got to know it, but you also have to believe it. (laughs) That Jesus overcame temptation for you. No compromise in the heart of Christ. Adam compromised almost immediately. Followed Eve into sin, lost paradise. Abraham compromised, almost lost his wife multiple times. Sarah compromised God's word and sent Hagar to Abraham who bore Ishmael and destroyed peace forever. Moses compromised God's command and got left out of the promised land. Israel compromised God's law, which we see in the book of Judges. What do they lose? They lose their land, their inheritance, and their blessing. Saul, the first king, compromised God's divine word and didn't do what he was supposed to with his enemies. David compromised over and over again. Lost his son because of his adultery. Lost his kingdom. Solomon compromised over and over. Married foreign wives who brought him away from God. Judas compromised. Peter compromised. You have compromised. I've compromised. Pastor Ryan, Pastor Rick, Pastor Matt, future, very soon, Pastor Dan, have compromised. Your parents, every person that you've ever looked up to that you thought was a hero, all compromised except one. Chapter 16 starts at nighttime, and it continues through darkness. And Samson never sees the light of day again. He gets his eyes gouged out. Samson ultimately was a half man. All power, no humility, no character. Don't you see yourself in this story? How often do you feel like an incomplete person, longing to be whole? And the more effort we put into being whole and happy, the more obvious our gaps are. And we ache to fill them. Just sit in this for a minute. Think about how incomplete you and I actually are. Think back to that time when you were a kid, when you realized for the first time that your parents or your hero had glaring character flaws that actually hurt you. And if you have kids of your own, think back to that first time that you failed them and they looked to you and it crushed you. We, we are not whole people. But a thousand years after this account, the whole person shows up. And he has all the power and he has all the righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Every way that we are, but was without sin. C.S. Lewis says this, this is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. This is us, by the way. We've lived a sheltered life by giving in, but Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The complete realist Piper says it this way. He says, do you think Jesus was tempted to lie? 
when he saw the cross, when he saw the guards, when they asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Do you think he was tempted to steal when his father died? That's what we assumed happened. This is a family of at least five people and a single mother. Difficult. I think he was tempted to help her in those years without Joseph. Do you think he was tempted when he saw all the nice things Zacchaeus had and Jesus owned nothing, didn't have a place to sleep at night? Do you think he was tempted to dishonor his parents when they were tough on him? Do you think he was tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused? Go through the Gospels and look at the lies. Uh, take it, do a study there. See how many times someone lied about the character, the nature, the person of Jesus. The most embarrassing moment, the worst lie that's been slung at us cannot compare to that. But he never compromised. The fact is, do you think he was tempted to murmur at his father's sovereignty when his good friend and cousin John the Baptist was beheaded by a, a pagan child? Do you think he was tempted to lust? Do you think he was tempted in all the moments that he faced, that we face every day? He knew the battle that we face, and he overcame it every single day day perfectly for over 30 years. Remember I said that the lesser Samson bound himself to his enemies in sin. The greater Samson has bound himself to his enemies in love. The true Samson was fearless too. He never wavered in walking directly into the enemy's capital city, but it wasn't with the swagger of sin. It was with the joyful swagger of salvation. The better Samson wasn't blind. He made the blind see. And the last Samson was in the darkness too. He was surrounded by sin and demons. But he didn't fall into temptation. Instead, he makes his enemies fall down before him. His power is unlimited. But unlike the lesser Samson, he's never used it for a millisecond for his own self-gratification. The only thing that matches his ferocious power is his ferocious love. So we see Jesus, the true Israelite, the true and final Samson, the whole person that we need. We see infinite power and infinite love. One pastor says it this way. He says, Jesus' purity is undefilable. He never touched a dead person. They came to life. He never touched a sick person, but made them whole. And he told them to go in obedience to show themselves to the priest. He honored the Sabbath according to the words of the Bible, not according to the words of the scribes who had only worldly authority. He had every right to use his own temple, but he paid the temple tax. His interaction with the Gentiles didn't push them farther away, but brought them in as family. He never ate unclean food. He never defiled himself in any ceremonial way. He was more holy than every priest he ever saw at the temple who were not the sons of Aaron, who were fake priests. He's the real son of Aaron. And he was more godly than all the pious men of his day who neglected God's compassion. I think we can safely say that he had no need to keep the ceremonial law 
because he was perfectly holy, and yet he kept the law at every single point to fulfill it forever for us. Man, when you look at the lesser Samson and his failure, over and over again, and is compromised over and over again, and we find ourselves in that person. That is who we are unrestrained. And then we look to the greater Samson, the true Israelite, the one who is our high priest from Hebrews 4, who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So verse 16 says, therefore. So here's what we do today. What do we do in response to this? Here's what we do. After looking at Jesus' perfection and his sympathy towards all of our struggles, Paul says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. So brothers and sisters, thank the Father that Samson is not our champion. That Samson is not our representative. That the forever compromising and sinful and weak man that he was is not the final and true Israelite. Jesus is. So the text says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I don't want you to hear or read in Hebrews that Christ dispenses his mercy or his grace from afar. He has bound himself forever to us here, right now, as close as you can imagine. And right now, he exists still fully God and fully man at the right hand of the Father. He is our undefeated champion over temptation. You and I have experienced terrible temptation. As far as I know, none of us have been tempted by Lucifer himself. But Christ was. And where my former elder brother and representative Adam fell flat on his face in the garden when he was tempted by Lucifer, my real and eternal and forever older brother and representative Jesus looked him dead in the eye and said no over and over and over again. And he quit and he left. Because he knew there was no compromise in Christ. Never. To think. Never a millisecond of the stuff that pops into our head throughout the day. Never a bad attitude towards people who did him wrong. Even to the point of death where he hung on the cross, he looked out and forgave them and asked his father to show mercy and compassion on his killers. We can't fathom that kind of perfection because we are a people of compromise. But praise God, because the Father sent the Son to show us what it looks like to say no to temptation. So this morning, empowered by the Spirit, if you belong to Christ, He can give you the strength, better strength than what Samson experienced. I could care less about a feat of physical strength if you're morally dead. Who cares about the power to tear a lion and a half if you're a garbage human being who abuses and treats other people terrible and doesn't worship the God who gave you that strength? Who cares? What God wants to see in us, the response he wants to see in us, is worship 
that we look to Jesus and we go, yes, this is my representative. Not Adam, not David, not Solomon, not Samson, not any other judge. We have the perfect judge in Christ. And where does he sit, family? What is he on? The mercy seat. So that when I fail and when you fail and we say yes to temptation and we keep the snake coiled around our neck, who do we go to? We don't go to Samson who failed. We don't go to a dead prophet who can't forgive us. We go to the one who sits ruling and reigning, is leaning forward in a posture of mercy and grace and can empower us with his spirit to increasingly say no to temptation. It's by God's power we're made whole. Let's pray together. God, we approach your throne now not as weak and helpless participants in a lesser covenant, but we're here now as empowered sons and daughters of the great covenant purchased by your blood. For those of us who are here and may be skeptical, may believe that these literary devices and judges are beautiful, but not necessarily true, Spirit, would you work on them? Would you show them that this is not only beautiful, but it's also perfectly true that the story of the gospel, this reality that the perfect person stepped out of heaven to bind himself to humanity, to make this place his home forever, is true. That Christ as a three-month-old and eight-year-old and 30-year-old was perfect, sinless in word and thought and deed to share his glory with broken vessels like us. So we look to you, Jesus, today as our king and as our example, as our friend and as our savior. Would you show us? Would you show us what snake is coiled around our necks? what compromises we have made, what sin we have allowed to live and hang out in our families' lives. And then, Spirit, by your power, would you show us how to wield the sword of your word to end the existence of that sin in our life, to choke it out, to kill it, to discard it, and to turn and to worship. We thank you. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us that we don't deserve. We praise you, Jesus, man without compromise, man without sin, full of power and mercy. And we ask you to bless us in your beautiful name, King Jesus. Amen.